0: Christmas traditions in the United States have many eclectic origins with those from the United Kingdom predominant. Therefore, it's no surprise that the substrate of the holiday meal usually is British in origin. Roasted root vegetables as a side dish, mashed potatoes, gravy, and the centerpiece being a large stuffed roasted fowl. It's a bird that the average American eats 16 pounds of every year. The wild version can run up to 20 miles an hour and can fly, and it's the mainstay of many holiday tables. We're herding up the history and origins of the Christmas turkey. Welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, so please subscribe so we can have other listeners join us at the Christmas table. If you have a quick minute, please leave a review for the podcast, and it lets me know how I'm doing, as well as helps others find the podcast. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eating sticker free of charge. Seasons Eatings also can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of these links can be found on our website, seasonseatingspodcast.com. And if you're feeling extra generous this holiday, you can buy me a coffee. That's ko-fi. Just click on the coffee cup on my home page, and you can buy me a coffee for as little as three dollars. Every donation goes towards the running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. When one is asked, what is the main dish served at a traditional Christmas dinner, the food that comes to mind for most people is turkey. For 87% of the people in the UK, it wouldn't be Christmas without a turkey on the table. Americans consume over 700 million pounds of turkey every year. And Canadians ate over 150 million kilograms of it in 2012. That's almost 10 pounds of turkey for every person in the country. It's no wonder turkey is high in protein and low in fat. No one is quite sure why turkeys are called turkeys. There are two main theories and both or a combination of them could be correct. One theory says that the first settlers in the Americas thought that turkeys were a type of large guinea fowl, a bird from Africa which they would have been used to eating in Europe. Guinea fowl were imported to Europe by Turkish traders in Constantinople, now called Istanbul. Back then anything exotic often had the word Turkish or Turkey put in front of it because the items often came through or via the country of Turkey. Guinea fowls were often called turkey cocks or turkey hens, both meaning Turkish birds, which then became shortened to turkeys. So they gave the same name to the new bird they saw in the Americas. But in some countries, turkeys aren't called turkeys. In French, they're called dind, meaning from India. In Russian, injushka, and Polish, inishka, meaning bird of India, and in Arabic they're called Jij hindi which means Indian rooster. And in Turkish, just Hindi, meaning India. The name was connected with India because Christopher Columbus was looking for India when he found the Americas. And so an Indian name was connected with the bird from the Americas. In 1758, turkeys were given the official Latin name Meleagris gallopavo. But that name is a mixture of Latin and Greek, and actually means guinea fowl chicken peacock. Which is very wrong, as turkeys are not guinea fowl at all, or chickens, or peacocks. (laughs) In Portuguese, a turkey is called a Peru, named after the country of Peru, which is in the Americas. This might be the most sensible name for turkeys. The turkey appeared on Christmas tables in England in the 16th century and popular history tells of King Henry VIII being the first English monarch to have turkey for Christmas. The 16th century farmer Thomas Tusser noted that by 1573 turkeys were commonly served at English Christmas dinners. The tradition of turkey at Christmas rapidly spread throughout England in the 17th century, and it also became common to serve goose, which remained the predominant roast until the Victorian era. It was quite common for goose clubs to be set up, allowing working-class families to save up over the year towards a goose before this. The famous English Christmas dinner scene appears in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where Scrooge sends Bob Cratchit a large turkey. In his book, The Turkey, An American Story, author Andrew Smith explains that wild turkeys range from Mexico to the east and west coasts of North America, it isn't known whether Turkey originated, or where, or how it was domesticated, but it's highly likely that wild turkeys were first domesticated in the highlands of central Mexico and in the American Southwest. The Spanish encountered domesticated turkeys in Mexico by 1518, and within a few years they were introduced into the West Indies and Spain. Shortly thereafter, turkeys were disseminated throughout Western Europe, the Mediterranean, and Asia. Turkeys are believed to have been brought to Britain in 1526 by Yorkshireman William Strickland. He acquired six turkeys from American Indian traders and sold them for Tuppence in Bristol. The association seems to have been accepted by his contemporaries since, when in 1550 he was granted a coat of arms and included a turkey cock in his pride proper. The official record of his crest in the archives of the College of Arms is said to be the oldest surviving European drawing of a turkey. Turkey's appearance in England's slaughter markets can be determined by looking at contemporary poultry trade records. For instance, in July 1521, a century before the pilgrims sailed to America, there's a small list of birds for sale in London. Birds such as swans, cranes, herons, chickens and geese are on the list, but no turkey. Precisely when the turkey arrived in England has been endlessly debated, But the first generally acceptance reference is in 1541, when Thomas Cramner, Henry VIII's Archbishop of Canterbury, proclaimed that only one large fish or fowl, such as a crane, a swan, or a turkey cock, should be served at meals for ecclesiastics. He wanted to curb gluttony in the higher clergy by only allowing one bird to be served per dish. Due to their size, These greater fowls were able to provide more meat, therefore negating the need to have more than one. Needless to say, Cranmer's advice was not adhered to. By 1559, turkeys were added to the newly regulated list of poultry wares. When the turkey arrived in England, it was immediately adopted by the upper classes. The turkey was similar to fowl already integrated into European cookery. The turkey was much larger than a chicken and supplied more meat. It was similar to a peacock, but its flesh tasted better and virtually any farmer could raise them. By 1577, English growers raised vast flocks of turkeys, which were then driven like cattle hundreds of miles to market. Large flocks were being raised by Norfolk, which had vast resources of grains and buckwheat. Before turkeys could travel by train, they and geese had to be walked from farm to the market. The distance between Norfolk and London is over 100 miles, or over 160 kilometers. This could take weeks, and the farmers and the bird walkers and the birds having to camp each night at the side of the road. The feet of the birds were often dipped in tar to act like little feet tires to stop them from getting sore. As turkeys became plentiful, they became more affordable to the middle classes, and were soon the least expensive bird on the English market. British cookbooks from the 16th century onward featured recipes for preparing turkeys for the table. In London's public markets, turkey cocks sold for a little less than a swan or a crane. Smaller hens sold for about a third of the price of the gobblers. By the 1570s, the price of a turkey dropped by 50%, but the price of other birds remained constant. Before the English settlers arrived in North America, turkey recipes appeared in British cookbooks. Shortly after the British colonies were established in North America, domesticated turkeys were imported from Europe. We'll find out how turkeys were prepared for the holiday table, after the break. It's Christmas! Hello, this is Adam from Merry Britsmas. I am a Christmas fanatic from the UK who thinks that the world needs to know more about the traditions, telly and music that helps make a British Christmas really festive. I look at everything from mince pies to Boxing Day to Wham! to Slade to the Royal Family to Doctor Who. If you want to find out more about a British Christmas or you are British and want a hit of nostalgia, check me out at Merry Britsmas. An happy blooming Christmas to you and all. Hi, this is Manny from Feliz Christmas, Merry Navidad, the bilingual, multilingual Christmas podcast. In our podcast, you will hear about foods, traditions, how this 2020 Christmas will be interesting, especially from six feet away, and many more new surprises. Join me on the road to Christmas, along with many guest hosts from other podcasts from the Christmas Podcast Network. You can listen to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, or just search for us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FCMN Podcast. Or visit our website, FCMNpodcast.com. Feliz Christmas, Merry Navidad. Nowadays, the most common way of preparing a turkey for the Christmas dinner is baking. This was true for the first recipes found for the turkey. The first recipe for turkey says to split it in two and then bake the bird. Baking it in the 16th century often resulted in tough meat, so this particular recipe has a sauce accompaniment. In Thomas Dawson's The Good Housewife's Jewel from 1587, he advises boning the bird and then boiling it. After boiling, lard is placed under the skin to keep the flesh moist. The bird is then enclosed in a coffin or a raised pastry crush, which was then baked. I mentioned pastry coffins in my episode about pumpkin pie and mincemeat. Boiling the bird has several advantages. Water boils at a constant temperature, so the bird cooks evenly inside and out. Nowadays you have a method called sous vide, where the food is sealed in plastic and placed in a water bath, kept at a constant temperature. This is basically the same method when you boil the turkey. Boiling also yields juicier meat than baking. Of course, the skin doesn't become brown, so many cookbooks suggested baking the bird for a short time after being boiled. Roasting the turkey is the second most common way to prepare the bird. This meant placing the turkey on hot coals if prepared outdoors. Indoors the birds would be roasted in front of an open fire. Turkeys were roasted on spits and required constant turning to ensure uniform cooking. This was usually done by a servant or a small child to keep the skin from scorching. A pan was placed under the turkey and the drippings were caught and later converted into gravy. No part of the turkey is left unused. The giblets, that is the heart, liver and kidneys, were cut up and added to the gravy or stuffing. The neck, carcass and bones were made into soup and some parts of the turkey took on a special favor. The tail bump at the back end of the bird has been called the Pope's nose since the 16th century and it's considered a succulent and delicious morsel for some and abhorred by others. By 1573 Thomas Tusser noted that turkeys were commonly served at English Christmas dinners. Its low cost and ease of preparation made it a sensible option to feed many at the holiday table. John Gay noted a poem called Fables from 1792 that the turkey reigns supreme at a Christmas dinner. From the low peasant to the lord, the turkey smokes on every board. By the late 18th century, the custom of giving turkeys to employees for Christmas dinner was well established. The gift Charles Dickens received in 1839 from his lawyer, Charles Smithson, may have inspired him to write that scene in A Christmas Carol, in which miserly Scrooge gives a prize turkey for his employee, Bob Cratchit. Do you know the poulterers? In the next street, but one at the corner, Scrooge inquired. I should hope I did, replied the lad. An intelligent boy, said Scrooge. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? "'Not the little prize turkey, the big one.' "'What?' "'The one as big as me,' returned the boy. "'What a delightful boy,' said Scrooge. "'It's a pleasure to talk to him. "'Yes, my buck.' "'It's hanging there now,' replied the boy. "'Is it?' said Scrooge. "'Go and buy it.' "'Go and buy it, and tell them to bring it here, "'that I may give them the direction where to take it. "'Come back with the man, and I'll give you a shilling. "'Come back with him in less than five minutes?' and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at a trigger who could have got off a shot half so fast. And it was a turkey. He could never have stood upon his legs, that bird. He would have snapped them short off in a minute, like sticks of sealing wax. Because of its popularity in Britain, turkey was thus not new to the pilgrims, by the time the colonists came to establish the Plymouth Colony in the early 17th century, they were well acquainted with the birds. In fact, the early English settlers to the Plymouth Bay Colony brought black turkeys with them. Although there were wild turkeys in the forest, they wanted domesticated turkeys for their barnyards. Domesticated turkeys provided a reliable source of meat throughout the year. Tame turkeys were on the list of expedition supplies requested by the Massachusetts governor in 1628. European settlers and travelers were fascinated by the wild turkey, which was larger than its domesticated twin. Unfortunately, aggressive hunting and the destruction of its habitat brought the wild turkey to near extinction. By the 1930s, the wild turkey vanished completely from 20 of the 39 states of the original range and were fast disappearing elsewhere still in the 1930s our beloved turkey would have cost most of us a week's wages today most people only need to work about two hours and the turkey appears on a now unshakable tradition it took american farmers and food processors decades to deliver a wild bird the turkey in industrial quantities before mass poultry production was widely available turkeys were sourced from the countryside through massive turkey shoots In which men and hunting dogs drove birds from wooded areas and shot them down in clearings after the locals claimed their own holiday birds the rest traveled to urban consumers this made the turkey a truly special item one worthy of the christmas feast and available only to a small elite the prime rib of beef was actually the economy option for the 19th and early 20th century americans looking to celebrate christmas during the 1940s though Post-war scientists and poultry breeders poured money and resources into creating a better meat-type chicken that was more like a turkey. This work provided new knowledge about turkey breeding, which allowed the North Carolina-based Butterball Turkey Company to begin marketing new, plumper, farm-raised birds in 1951. This achievement, mirrored by companies like ConAgra, made turkeys even more affordable and plentiful. Better freezing technologies Also introduced in the 1950s helped make turkeys even easier on families finances, since the processors could slaughter birds year-round and release them when demand was highest. In America today, the turkey industry produces more than 5.3 billion pounds of turkey products annually. One of the more iconic images of the holidays is that the two family members, usually kids, fighting over a wishbone each struggles to crack the bone and get the bigger piece, ensuring good luck and that his or her wish will be granted. What's behind this rather odd piece of folklore? The furcula or wishbone of a turkey, duck or chicken is the fusion of the bird's clavicles right above the sternum. Although today we mostly play the wishbone game with turkey bones during the holidays, the origins of wishbones as Lucky Charms go all the way back to ancient times around 700 BCE, the Etruscans believed birds were oracles and could tell the future. Whenever the Etruscans slaughtered a chicken, they would leave the furcula in the sun to dry out, preserving it in hopes of gaining some of its divining powers. Villagers would then pick up the furcula and gently stroke it while making a wish, giving it its more common name, the wishbone. Legend has it that the Romans then picked up on this superstition. However, chickens were scarce, and therefore so were the wishbones. People had to resort to cracking the bones in half, so they were enough to go around. Later, the Romans passed the wishbone-cracking tradition to the British, who then carried it over with them to the Americas. As this new land was abundant with wild turkeys, people began using turkey wishbones for luck. However you have your turkey, roasted or fried, stuffed or seasoned, Dark or white meat, this Christmas tradition is here to stay. Thank you for listening to another serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings can be found on wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I would love to hear from you. You can contact me at Seasons Eatings Podcast at gmail.com. You can give me ideas for future episodes, leave me a comment or a criticism, or just say hello. Also, if you leave me a five-star review and let me know, I'll send you a Seasons Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. And speaking of sweet treats, heading over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and buy me a coffee. That's K-O-F-I. Just click on the cup at the top of the screen. Any donation is appreciated and helps me with the daily running of the podcast. Thanks again for having another serving of Seasons Eatings. All music used on Season's Eatings is royalty free and used under the Creative Commons license.